This audio is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on SiriusXM. From the campus of the Wharton School at the University of Pennsylvania, this is Mind Your Business Business. on Business Radio. Here's your host, Lauren Feldman. Welcome to Mind Your Business. I'm Lauren Feldman. I'm Chief Content Officer of the Oxford Center for Entrepreneurs. Uh, We have a daily newsletter just for entrepreneurs called The Morning Report. You can find it at Get The Morning Report. Thanks for joining us today. As usual, we're not going to tell you how to run your business. This show is about ideas and strategies and conversations, and we want to have those conversations with you. If there's something you've been struggling with, especially if it has anything to do with um, how you build your business, how you fund it, what your ultimate goals for that business are, call us at 1-844-WHARTON. That's 1-844-942-7866. And let me emphasize, this is a safe space for business owners. If you're struggling with something, someone else listening is probably struggling with it too. In other words, there are no stupid questions. Back with me today to field those questions is Dave Wharton. Dave used to be a venture capitalist, a very successful venture capitalist. We'll talk more about that. But now he's founder of the Tugboat Institute, an organization that is trying to redefine what it means to be successful in business. Dave and Tugboat espouse a philosophy he calls evergreen, which encourages business owners to build businesses that will last rather than businesses that can be sold for a quick profit. Today, We're happy to take your questions really about any aspect of running a business, but we're going to focus on the impact of uh, businesses taking on private equity investors. investors. It's it's a very timely issue and and kind of a troubling one uh, for reasons that we'll get to. Welcome back to Mind Your Business, Dave. Uh, Glad to be back. Thanks. Really happy to have you, as always. Uh, Dave, I was lucky enough to uh, attend your uh, your annual summit, the Tugboat Summit in Sun Valley in June. It's a it's a great event, a great location. Why, why don't you tell us quickly a little bit about uh, what you're doing with the the Tugboat Institute? What is Tugboat? Uh, yeah, happy to. Thanks, Lauren. Um, so we started this about six years ago, and uh, what we're doing is we're bringing together uh, leaders of what we call evergreen businesses. These are businesses that are being designed and led to stay private forever and to kind of grow from their own resources, from their own profitability. And we have uh, kind of seven key, uh, I guess, values or tenets of being an evergreen company, and we call them the seven Ps. And it's purpose, perseverance, people first. And those first three really describe the kind of the character and orientation of the ownership and the leadership team. And then the next four really are the implementation of the evergreen strategy, which is staying private forever, growing from your own profits, Paced growth uh, and pragmatic innovation, and those seven kind of work well together, and we think give a very high probability of being able to be a hundred-year company. And, and what's uh, the what's the benefit of that? Why why should being a hundred-year company uh, be the goal? Why should staying private forever be the goal? Well, it really comes down to what the uh, the founders and eventually uh, you know the operators of the business and owners really want, and for us. Uh, and for the people in our community, they view this as uh, a legacy. It, it's, it's building something that will be highly beneficial for the employees, uh, for the suppliers, the customers, their communities, and ultimately their families. And so the view being that uh, being able to stay private, to operate under these values because of the support of the shareholders to do that, uh, allows you to really make a difference in society. And, and 
I like to say, and my friend Josh Barron's like likes to say, you know, this is really capitalism at its best. Well, as I said, I was lucky enough to be at your event this year. Actually, I, th- I think I've been there three years in a row now, and, and you do have an incredibly impressive uh, group of companies and people that attend. Uh, definitely one of the highlights uh, of my year getting to, to go there. This year, you started the summit with a, with a really interesting talk uh, where you talked about uh, private equity and I think you said that the the percentage of uh, private businesses in this country that have taken private equity is now about twenty percent. Do I have that right? Yeah, that's correct. I, I think your and my mutual friend Doug Tatum has done this analysis and uh, has a database of all companies in the United States, and, and he may be missing a few, but he's got a, a fairly significant representation of this. And his analysis shows that twenty percent of uh, companies. That, and these are larger than like million-dollar revenue companies, kind of mid-market companies, are either directly owned by private equity firms or indirectly owned through their portfolios. And, and I, th- I think you shared with me, actually, uh, doesn't Doug like to say that if you've taken $1 of private equity, you've essentially sold your business? Yeah, he says that. And I think I, <laughs> I always said if you, you bring on a private equity partner, you've effectively sold your business. But yeah, he says that I think that's like a very uh, pointed comment. You take on a dollar, you put yourself on that path. And, and the point of that is you've, you've put yourself on the path of not controlling you know, what you've created and started and built. Um, it means you've brought somebody else in, and, and it's almost like now you have a boss. Yeah, I mean, it, the, the relationships can evolve over time. I mean, often they can start off as very positive relationships, and sometimes they stay through that as a positive relationship. And then other times it kind of changes over time. And, and I think, you know, there's plenty of horror stories out there, people who uh, their expectations were not met in, in uh, getting those partnerships. And what I've generally seen is is that it, it, it all comes down to what you expect of that partner, right? And if you expect the partner to allow you to stay private forever, you've got misset expectations. If you expect the partner to help you cut costs, drive higher revenues, uh, put a lot of leverage on the company, and then try to get a high-valued exit, then you're probably going to, those expectations are going to be met. You you referred to the horror stories. I, I think most of us have heard those horror stories. A lot of them have gotten a lot of attention. You know, some of them are, are stories about big business uh, that private equity has been involved in. But you, you can also hear lots of stories about smaller businesses that have not gone the way the, the founders, the original owners wanted it to because they brought in private equity. In, in your mind, wh- wh- what's the typical horror story? What What's likely to go wrong if something does go wrong? Well, I, uh, I again, I think it becomes uh, it's, it's really an expectation gap. Um, and you know, for example, and I, I talked about this in the conference this year. Um, you know, one executive I have talked to that had been involved in a billion-dollar-plus roll-up in the healthcare space. Uh, the private equity firm first came in about thirty percent of the company. The founder stayed in control, and not much changed. They got better about budgeting. Uh, they had a we uh, might call a, a more sophisticated board of directors. And interesting enough, the executives in the team felt that was a fairly positive shift. When the next al- a chunk of the company was purchased, basically buying out the founder from the remaining stake, uh, everything changed. 
and suddenly the company was being run by the spreadsheets. It was being run by weekly and monthly reporting. Uh, it was, uh, you know, it was always scrutinizing why was this not working, why was this not working, and not understanding the broader context of, you know, the customers, the markets, and whatnot. It became very dependent on making sure the business operated to the plan that the private equity firm had set. Partly because they had to cover very significant debt payments, and they and didn't want to be in violation of covenants for those. But also because that's what the private equity firm would be uh, felt that would drive. Uh, uh, long-term value. And so for the rest of the executive team that had this very charmed relationship under the founder, it suddenly became one where they said, you basically just figured out what the owners wanted, and you tried to make excuses why you weren't achieving that. And uh, and, that, and that's very broken, because now you're running the business around the expectations of that private equity firm, not for the employees and not for the customers. And the motivations of the investors versus the motivations of the founders can can diverge in part be because of some fairly simple math, which I've heard you discuss. Um, the, the, the math of a private equity fund is such that they can make money based on you know the, the size of the fund they've created, the fees they take, almost regardless of whether the company they've bought makes a profit. Is 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 do I have that right? Yeah, I, that that's true. So you know, the, the basic idea being is that um, the kind of private equity principles will raise a fund, and then eventually, if they're successful, uh, subsequent funds, and you know, they're typically paid, you know, two percent fees on that. It could be as low as one, could be as high as 3%. So hypothetically, if you raised a billion dollars and you're at that 2% level, that's $20 million a year. They usually have a 10-year life with a two-year renewal. So if they just did the 10-year life, uh, they're going to bring in not $20 million, but they'll bring in over $200 million in guaranteed income over the period of that fund. And that's just something really important for entrepreneurs to understand is that they are extremely well paid for just raising the fund. Now, they, of course, they want to deploy it in such a way they get returns to raise the next fund, they get the next 200, 300, 400 million dollars of fees, but they've done extremely well in the achievement of raising the fund. And so then afterwards, you know, um, you know, of course, as I said, they want to have good returns, but the returns need to be just good enough You're listening to Mind Your Business. I'm Lauren Feldman. My guest is Dave Wharton, founder of the Tugboat Institute. If you have a question about what's going on in your business or about venture capital or private equity or the evergreen approach to building a business, call us. We're at 1-844-WHARTON. That's 1-844-942-7866. David, you know, know, it's, it's very easy to make uh, private equity folks sound like uh, the boogeyman. Um, there, there are a lot of horror stories out there, but I think it's it's also important to understand that there's there's a reason that businesses turn to them. Um, you know, it, building a business is a struggle, and you do need capital to do it. And you you can understand why why people are tempted uh, when someone comes knocking on the door. And, r- and right now, private equity firms do have a lot of cash, so they, they are knocking on doors. Uh, we're going to have a guest join us uh, very shortly, uh, a young entrepreneur who's building a business, and we're going to talk to him about the stresses. But um, I- I'm curious how you look at that. Uh, what do you say to a- an owner who tells you he or she is tempted to take private equity money? Well, I 
Yeah, that's, uh, <laughs> that's very, it's very situational, very specific. But, you know, maybe one of the things I could do just you know, before trying to answer that question is say, you know, what is kind of the value proposition of the private equity firm for the business, right, to that business owner that would cause them to want to take that capital or believe they want to take the capital? And, and it might be something along the lines of this, you know, you know, we are the experts. We have a huge network of company builders, politicians, banks, service providers, and we will work closely together to make your business hugely successful successful, we'll take that to the next level. And that's a, that can be a very appealing message for somebody to hear, like, wow, I'm tapped into this powerful network, all these relationships. I've been kind of working, you know, in my town. I've been working this business for a long time. And, you know, that it, it's kind of a sense that I, I made it, uh, right? But also, you, you know, this kind of commitment that we're going to make it even more successful. We're going to take that incredible company you've built, take it further. That idea of next leveling it can be appealing. Um, you know, of course, they're making a commitment that your company can be in good hands, right? They know that you would not do something if they said, you know, we're going to brutalize your company. But, you know, we're in good hands. Don't worry. We promise we'll take care of you and the company. And so that's reassuring also. And then also, you know, there might be something along the lines of, you know, by selling the company, let's say they're selling the entire company, this is a tremendous opportunity for you to diversify your wealth. You know, you've got all of your money in one um, eggs in one basket. This gives you a chance to have a lot of liquidity. And then that cash could be reinvested across a whole broad set of assets, including our funds. You know, be a partner in our funds going forward. And as we go acquire other companies, you'll be a participant in that. And, and those things, um, you know, there, there's a real appeal to that, that, that messaging. You know, it occurs to me, maybe we should um, just specify the definitions here because these terms get th- thrown around a lot. Uh, you know, I think most of us understand what we mean when we talk about public money. That's, you know, money raised in a, in a, in a public offering on a stock market. Uh, private money, you know, that, that encompasses a, a, a lot of different things. Um, you know, there's venture capital, there's private equity, there are angel investors. Um, they're just, you know, individual investors. Uh, there's f- friends and family. Uh, w- when we talk about private equity, we don't mean those smaller investors. We're, we're talking about um, private equity funds. Am I right? Yeah, you might you might call that institutional investors. But um, you know, they raise money from what's called limited partners into a fund structure that has, as I said earlier, maybe a ten-year life. So the LPs provide the money into the fund. The general partners of that fund, because funds have general partners and limited partners, that's the structure, are responsible for the deployment of those funds. And they're paid a fee on those funds, a 2% I talked about earlier would be an average, plus they get a piece of the profits. Uh, So as they return cash back to the LPs, the excess of that above the original cash provided, they participate in that. And that might be the tune of 20, 25, or 30%. So while they do make money on the fees alone, regardless of fund performance, you know, there's clearly an incentive to also participate in, in the profits of that. And those LPs are endowments, they're foundations, they're pension funds, uh, they're family offices, they're wealthy individuals, uh, they're foreign entities, they're corporations. A lot of people are participants in supporting private equity firms. But I think it's, you know, we haven't talked about this yet, Lauren. It's okay. I might digress to, you know, this kind of comment by Warren Buffett. Would that be okay if I please do that a little bit? So um, arguably LPs love private equity. 
they love it. <laughs> it's demonstrated by the amount of capital that has flowed to private equity. It's allowed private equity firms to own 20% of the U.S. economy effectively. The number of private equity-owned companies is now almost 2x the number of public companies. And if you went back not that long ago, but if you went back just to the early 90s, you had just a few hundred firms owned by private equity. And now you've got over 3,000 or 8,000, um, and number of public companies today is from around 4,500. And you know, if you have curves, you'll see that the public company uh, over time has kind of gone down, the total number of public companies, and the number of private equity firms have actually gone through the roof, up significantly. And so you know, the other customer and the real customer of the private equity firm is those limited partners. So why are these limited partners giving these private equity firms so much money? And the truth is, the financial performance suggests they should. And the past performance has been about 14% net of fees over the last 30 years, compared to about 8% for publics. And so that on the surface would suggest, why wouldn't they just keep, keep getting tons of money? But to my point about uh, Warren Buffett, he's always made this argument, he's made it for decades. If you remove the leverage, if you look at the unlevered returns of common public stocks compared to the unlevered returns of alternatives and private equity, common wins. And so as you kind of peel this back. Could, could you just it. break that down for us? When you say remove the leverage, okay. you're talking about uh, debt, debt and, and removing the, the money that is borrowed by private equity firms. That's exactly right. So, for, for example, you know, um, credit has been very easy over the last few decades. Private equity firms generally have about 60% net debt to enterprise value. That's compared to about 10% for public companies. So if you were just to reduce the private equity leverage from 60% to 10%, that would explain most of the difference between the 8% return on publics versus the 14% for private equity historically. But the other thing that's happening, and this will be interesting because prior performance may not indicate future performance, historically private equity firms purchase firms for about seven times EBITDA, and EBITDA is a measure of cash flow. But today that average is closer to 11 times. So while it may have been 14% and unlevered closer to publics going forward, it's a little hard to imagine, and this is, again, I'll, I'll give Warren Buffett credit for really raising this year after year in his annual meeting. Are they really going to achieve these kind of returns going forward at the prices they're paying today? And those prices are a reflection of how competitive it is out there now to acquire companies. I want to go to back to the definitions for one quick moment. Could, could we just nail sure. down one thing? You, As I said earlier, you spent a lot of time as a very successful venture capitalists. What's the difference between venture capital and private equity capital? So venture capital would typically be uh, the institutional investors who are taking the greatest risk to create new companies in the marketplace. And the traditional venture capital firm would be one that would write, you know, this going back 20, 30 years ago, a half million to million dollar check to have an entrepreneur write a business plan and then work with them through subsequent rounds of financing. And getting a product to market to actually build a successful company. Private equity really started out of the buyout world and uh, kind of the uh, probably made famous in the 80s with Gordon Gecko and others, you know, the idea of you know, buying these companies and stripping them down and uh, doing financial engineering and then making a profit on, on that financial engineering. Uh, and, and what's interesting is the two have merged more and more over time because, as you know, there's some 
very large, well-capitalized venture capital firms today that largely do much later stage investing. And there's a number of private equity firms that are also participating in what would be considered later stage investing, not buyouts, just growth investing. And so the, the two are kind of merging as uh, venture capital goes to a larger scale and private equity kind of comes down to capture some of those, uh, those pre-public growth companies that the venture capitalists may have originally backed. Interesting. I'm Lauren Feldman. My guest is Dave Warden, founder of the Tugboat Institute. If you've got a question or a comment, give us a call at 1-844-WARDEN. That's 1-844-942-7866. As I said before, it's easy to sit around and say nobody should take private equity. It's a mistake. There are, you've heard all the horror stories. But but there are reasons people do, and there are reasons, uh, you know, the reasons involve wanting to build a business and needing to raise capital uh, to do that. Uh, to, to discuss this at the more of the, the grassroots level, I wanted to bring uh, an actual entrepreneur into the uh, conversation, someone who's building a, an impressive business right now. Uh, let me bring uh, Martin Solorzano on. Uh, Martin is founder of a business based in New York City, uh, and I believe in uh, Florida as well, called Staffed Inc. Welcome to Mind Your Business, Martin. Hi, Lauren. Thank you for having me. How are you? Um, doing great. Pleasure to have you here. Uh, Thank you. Tell us, uh, give us a little bit of the, the background. What, what is Staff Inc.? Great. So I, um, Staff Inc., I started it about three years ago. As you mentioned, we're headquartered in New York City. We are a national event staffing agency that provides temp uh, staff for uh, corporate clients, uh, brands and agencies, restaurants, hotels, and venues around the country. Our focus is really on experiential marketing, but we have a division for hospitality and catering, uh, and we're launching a third division called Placement that's going to be focused on uh, full-time job opportunities with the clients that we work with. Have you been growing? Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Since I started the business, we've been doubling every single year. Uh, Have you had to hire a lot of people to, uh, to do that? Yeah, we're we're at um, eight full time employees right now. Um, we started off with two, it went to four, and now we're at eight. Um, and it's all been a very organic growth. I don't have any investors. It's bootstrap, um, so it's 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 been stressful, <laughs> but uh, also exciting and challenging. Um, and we have a lot of we're just we're just we're growing at a really fast rate, which is which is fun. Has it been a challenge to finance that growth? Um, we actually landed a really big uh, corporate client that um, provides us with pretty great deposits on their events. So that's helped a lot with cash flow. But prior to that, there were moments where I was like, all right, I really have to make sure that I am uh, keeping everything very level to, to sustain our growth. Dave, I want to bring you into the conversation here uh, at your uh, event. I heard you talk about, you know, there's sort of alternatives to uh, to private capital, and you mentioned before that you know that you, you understand that there 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 is a case that uh, private equity investors uh, make. Uh, you sort of gave the alternative view, and I believe you know get, effectively financing your business through the money that you get from your clients is, is one of those alternatives. Yeah, that's correct. I mean, that, some people would call that organic growth. Others call that bootstrapping. But mm-hmm. yes, having uh, designed a business model and an approach and a plan that allows you to grow the business over a long period of time using kind of your own internal resources, uh, which 
in the early years uh, will look by venture standards to be anemic, if not losing ground. But over long periods of time, it's really the power of compounding, you can build very big businesses. Um, but it won't happen organically in the time frames that venture capital would typically expect. Now, there are exceptions to that, but generally, um, uh, you know, venture capitalists like to see things growing 70, 100, 150% per year uh, to, in a big market to kind of warrant their interest. And it's understandable, you know, because they have to, you know, as we talked about earlier, return uh, significant returns to their LPs to be able to go forward. Well, we, you know, we all we all hear those stories about those companies that they grow that fast, and and you know, people like me who who tell those stories in financial publications are somewhat to blame for that. We tend to focus on uh, companies that raise a lot of money and go out to change the world, and we create this expectation. And a lot of people think that's the only way to be successful. I'm, I'm curious, Martin. Um, you, you've been growing fast. Uh, I'm sure you have, uh, you know, friends, peers, colleagues, maybe who are saying to you, you know, think how fast you could grow if you started taking on, um, you know, venture capital or, uh, or, or uh, other types of capital. How have you thought about that? Does, has that gotten to you at all? Uh, it's actually really funny because I, I, a lot of my advisors, that's what they call, they've all kind of uh, told me to do. Um, Memorial Day weekend earlier this year, I was traveling uh, for about two weeks, and I got back into my office, and my entire team sat me down because we just keep growing and growing and growing, and they see what's coming in Q3 and Q4, and they were like, they, they all sat me down when I got back, and they were like, you, we think that you need to get an investor involved. We want to scale. We're on the same team. We all see what's happening, uh, but we think that you're going to need to like hire the right people, incorporate technology to make this all happen. And I remember telling them, like, you guys are more, more, you guys are more prepared to scale than like I am right now. I've been enjoying the speed at which we're going. Um, and then ultimately, right shortly after that, we landed that huge contract, and that funneled a lot of cash into the company, which helped us kind of sustain the organic growth that I wanted. So I'm still just kind of going with that. I haven't, I don't really want um, investors or private equity at this very moment. Um, I kind of just like running it and doing it all on my own right now. Dave, have you been in that situation where you've talked to an entrepreneur who's considering uh, maybe taking money and you know debating the the pros and cons? Well, as you can imagine, I've been on both sides of this because uh, <laughs> I was in the venture industry for a while. I uh, I was uh, doing my best to convince people to take our capital and use that capital to grow faster. And yeah, with, yeah. with the formation of Tugboat Institute six years ago, you know. It, it, I've had hundreds of conversations with folks that have chosen not to raise venture capital or private equity for basically the same, you know, similar reasons to Martin. Um, you know, just the sense that, uh, you know, I'm growing at a pace where I, I, I'm comfortable. Uh, my leadership skills, my ability to develop the team, the team to execute is kind of working well. And I don't want to get too ahead of myself as far as the culture and the capabilities of the team, um, as well as, you know, just kind of a longer term view that, um, you know, maybe instinctual or uh, they really understand it. It's like, you know, I, I don't know if those partners will be aligned with what I'm trying to achieve over long periods of time, which may evolve as I learn and I grow and I kind of see what's out there. And what I generally say to folks is unless you're in one of those markets where it's a winner take all and there will be no other winners ever, then you have the luxury as long as you hire good people, you treat them well, you secure good customers, you treat them well, uh, you will, you'll have profits and you can do it over a very long 
period of time with your own organic kind of resources, and you can build something that's extremely meaningful, hundreds of millions, billions in revenue, uh, if you're prepared to kind of dedicate your life to that, that endeavor. My name is Lauren Feldman. I'm speaking with Dave Wharton and Martin Solorzano. If you have a comment or a question, we're at 1-844-WHARTON. That's 1-844-942-7866. Martin, what do you think when you, when you look toward the future? What, what are your goals? Um, do, you, do you foresee taking capital at some, private capital at some point? Um, it's definitely on my mind a lot more lately. I recognize that for us to really scale to a whole other level, we're going to have to incorporate technology into how we're operating, uh, especially to make sure that we keep our overhead lower or all of our operational costs. Um, technology is not something cheap to kind of build out and implement. Um, Can you I give us a hint? Re- what, what kind of technology are you talking about? What, what would you have to uh, do in order to, to scale the way you would like to? So right now, we use a platform through a third-party developer for our staffing software, it's where all of our talent will submit their applications. Um, it's where we filter through the system and assign them onto events and shifts and book them. And we send all the details and communicate a lot with a lot of them through there. The platform that I've been using is uh, a little dated, um, but I'm so you know fixed into it that I can't really just move to another platform a lot easier. Um, I kind of I met with seven different companies that do um, what I'm doing now and I'll offer that service for the staffing software. Um, and a lot of them have really great features that I think would, would really just uh, elevate what we're doing now and help out a lot. But they're also all missing fundamental things that I would need. Um, so I had the idea of, like, maybe I should just make my own. <laughs> um, and I spoke to another – I met through – I work in a WeWork building. And one of the, build, one of the offices a few uh, doors down, uh, I met with a, a gentleman who owns his own business. And he was – we were talking about potentially partnering. Um, and he was like, you know, I'll partner with you on this. I'll help you build the app out. We'll white label it, and you can license it out to other staffing agencies, you know, restaurants or different retail stores, because it's essentially scheduling software uh, for booking employees or contractors um, and scaling that. So, yeah, that's that's what I'm thinking I might be doing with my business in the near future. It's an interesting situation. I've talked to a lot of uh, uh, owners and CEOs uh, of companies who've been in a similar spot where they've they've built a business to do something and then essentially created a second business, uh, a software <laughs> yeah. business, uh, where they build the software to, to aid their own business, but decide that they can actually make money by selling it to other companies. Dave, what do you think of that? Have, do, you, do you think that usually works? Yeah, lots of things can work. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. Yeah, that's, that's the wonderful thing about entrepreneurs and creativity and all that. So, yeah, and, and I was just curious when Martin said that. Martin, was, was this partner that we work building somebody that is a venture capitalist, or is this somebody who's kind of a, a successful individual that was willing to you know provide some capital to you to kind of build out that project? So he's also an entrepreneur, and he has his own business designing apps and technology and, and building off that software for different technology companies. Um, so he does that already, and he, he was like, I, can, I have my team, and I can dedicate some of them to working on this for you at minimal cost um, in you know, return for equity or ownership. And that, you know, I think that's probably an interesting conversation too, Lauren, because we've talked about this before. If I could build on that, Martin. Sure. You know, your, your, your first line of capital is your customers, right? It's your business model. It's like being able to generate cash internally, and that allows a certain level of growth, which 
you might call your self-funded growth rate. Um, yeah. Then you know, many evergreen entrepreneurs, what they'll do is they'll, um, they might do a little bit of modest borrowing. It could be an SBA loan, which I'm learning could become, those are actually can be much bigger than I even imagined, up to tens of millions of dollars, but it might be an SBA loan or some kind of modest amount of leverage. Not enough you'd ever get yourself in trouble, you know, one times mm-hmm. even, uh, two times even, uh, something like that. Uh, but the third level, you know, if, 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 if you need it and the first two levels didn't get you there, uh, could be outside capital. And the only thing I'd recommend, uh, you know, depending on, you know, Martin, your long-term vision for the business is that if you think, for example, you'd like to be evergreen, this could be a company that stays private, it's owned by you, maybe some of your employees going forward, you'd like to build something big and independent that way. Um, this partner you've described might be a very good partner, you know, where you've, for services, you've swapped some equity. I just say the really important thing is, depending on what your long-term plans are, you just make sure that he is also aligned with that. So you're not committing to sell the company someday. You're not committing to go public someday. You're not committing to have him bought out by a you know, financial partner. You're just simply saying, look, as I build a great business, you know, you will participate in distributions of excess cash just like I will and my team will as owners in the business. And, you know, there's a number of companies that have done that very successfully. And so, anyway, that, that's why it's kind of pushing on, you know, what kind of partner would this be? Because um, you don't necessarily have to be on the venture capital or private equity path just because you've raised outside capital. It just depends who that capital provider is. And I think that's yeah. unfortunately something that's being taught in the business schools and unfortunately in a lot of media publications, Lauren, that you know, your, your only path is venture capital or private equity. Um, and, and that's not true. I mean, there's, a, there's a kind of the bootstrappers path and then there's kind of the, let's call it permanent capital partner path too. Hmm. Any uh, reaction to that, Martin? Yeah, so I was reading the I was reading the Inc. article on you, Dave, um, and I and I just learned about the term evergreen companies, um, and I, de- I identify 100% with that. And it's funny because a lot of my advisors are like, "What are you going to do? Would you go public? Would you uh, sell? Or, you know, do an acquisition down the road?" And for me, it was like, I don't really want to do that. I'm really passionate about what I'm doing now. It's it's exactly in line with who I am as a person and how I operate. I'm so pa- you know I'm, I'm passionate about it. I love it. I'm driven. Um, and I want to do this for as long as I can. Uh, I didn't even think that that, you know, that that doesn't really cross your mind when you talk to business minded people as that being like your long term plan. <laughs> so what you're suggesting now and finding like a permanent capital investor um, within being partners with somebody to develop the technology side definitely resonates with me. Yeah, you just I'll, I'll play a fun one with you. And that's awesome. Martin. I'm, I'm, I'm happy to hear that because you know, this is ultimately, you know, uh, wonderful thing about entrepreneurship is that, uh, and you take all that risk, you work that hard, you should be able to do what you want to do, right? And not feel that you're forced into any one path. But, uh, you know, I was just kind of laughing because I was thinking about Enterprise Rental Car where we visited Andy Taylor, you know, last year and kind of talked about uh, the history of Enterprise and kind of his uh, role in that. But one of the things that came up that, you know, Enterprise did have an early kind of friend uh, that was an investor in enterprise uh, under when Jack was running the company, not Andy. Uh, you know, that company today is a $26, $27 billion company. Uh, don't know how profitable, but I think it's quite profitable. And I think that family sold out pretty early, um, just deciding, you know, I wanted to do long term, so they got out. But if the family had stayed in, could you imagine? I mean, for what it's probably a $100,000 investment today would probably generate $100 million in annual distributions or more? I don't know. I'm just guessing. But um, 
So, you know, those folks that actually are fortunate enough to find great entrepreneurs to partner with over a very long period of time, and you know, maybe Martin, you're one of those, would be very fortunate. It, you know, kind of to pick on Warren Buffett again, you know, uh, he, his, his kind of classic line is, you know, in good companies with good management, his holding period is forever. And I think there's some wise folks out there that understand there are private businesses, perhaps you like yours, Martin, that they'd be so fortunate to be a partner with for decades. Right? It's a legacy yeah. investment, just like it's a legacy company you're building. Martin, thanks so much for joining us. I, I love your story. I'd love to keep in touch. Well, we'd really like to have you come back and uh, continue to share your journey with us. Thank you very much for having me. I appreciate it. If you want to learn Thank more you, about Martin. Martin, you can go to his website, uh, staffedinc.com. Uh, Dave, I love the uh, the comparison that you do between In-N-Out Burger and McDonald's. We you know we all know how successful McDonald's has been, but it, it's such an interesting comparison in that they both started at about the same time in about the same part of the uh, country and yet took very different routes that I'm not sure uh, most people fully appreciate. Yeah, yeah. Do you want me to dive in? Yeah, please. Uh, <laughs> give, give, give us your quick analysis. Uh, what are the key differences, and uh, how has that affected where each of them has ended up? Yeah, I, I think it's, it's really interesting because it, you know, it, was, it was Harry and Esther who founded uh, In-N-Out Hamburgers, and this was in the late 1940s. And uh, Harry had a really strong desire. And let me, let, let me set the historical context because it's pretty important, right? Uh, just after World War II, L.A. has become the third largest manufacturing area in the U.S. after New York and Michigan. Population is growing very rapidly. The introduction of the freeway system and the GI Bill, there's lots of families being formed, a million cars in the L.A. basin alone. Good jobs, uh, disposable income, and casual fast food stands were popping up all over the place. And they were very lucrative for the owners of, the, of those independent casual fast food stands. And so there was Tommy's, Carl's Jr., McDonald's. Um, and in and out all in the L.A. area, plus probably hundreds more that we don't even know of today. And so that was kind of the environment. And, you know, you can feel that kind of environment even today, except for it's not casual fast food. It's things like Internet software, correct? But Harry had a pretty strong point of view about this. And I think, you know, this kind of goes back to the entrepreneur's mindset. What do you want to build? And where he was focused initially, and this, he, I think, he attributes really to a kind of a gut feeling about what's right, is he wanted to serve quickly the freshest, highest quality hamburgers and fries. And he wanted to keep the menu really simple. It's like we, we do one thing, we do it really well. It's a hamburger, right? We're going to have sparkling clean environments, service innovations. We're going to treat our people well. And we're going to remain family-owned and independent. So he started it with that mindset. So I'm sorry, when were we going to say something? No, 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 please. Oh, and so, you know, to him, you know, what did product quality mean? It meant only the best cuts of beef, uh, fresh potatoes that were peeled in the store every morning, cooked in 100% sunflower oil. It meant the crispest uh, lettuce and only the inner, inner leaves of that, fresh baked buns every morning, and only the center cuts of beef eater tomatoes. So that was, you know, he was very focused on that. He, he was the one that invented the drive through People don't give him credit for it because he didn't patent it, but that was his idea, you know, in and out. And he paid his people well. Minimum wage was about 65 cents an hour at the time, and he paid him a dollar an hour, plus he gave him one free hamburger per shift, and he gave him bonuses every two weeks. And everybody had to start at the bottom, and everybody had to work up, and he had a profit-sharing plan. He actually gave loans for homes and cars to his associates and loved to gather them. He just really loved his people, and you know, Esther right there with him. And they just kind of perfected that in that one location. So here's where the divergence happened. Suddenly, um, 
Harry was feeling some pressure because he had associates working for him at the one location who had mastered the location, and there was no other room for growth for him. So for the first time, he said, I think I'll open a second store to give the associates an opportunity for leadership. It wasn't about the money for him. It was about that. So he had an associate that was ready to go. He had identified an affordable location with very high traffic and visibility that he could buy with his own cash, and, uh, and he was kind of ready to go. So that became Store 2 in 1951. So right around that kind of 50s, early 60s period, um, everybody kind of realized this casual fast food is a big deal. Somebody's going to win this thing, or somebody's going to win this. And that's Wendy's, Carl's Jr., Kentucky Fried Chicken, McDonald's, Burger King, and Taco Bell. And what they do is they have a different focus than Harry. They're going to blanket the country. They're going to focus on high volume, speed, and low cost in food production and their employees. They're going to franchise so they can actually use other people's money to grow even faster. And they're going to raise significant outside equity and debt, if not go public or be sold, to really fuel that expansion. So as a point of comparison, in 1965, Kentucky Fried Chicken had 1,000 locations. Burger King had 100. McDonald's had 738. How many do you think In-N-Out had? I have no idea. Five. Wow. Okay, now we're in 1971. Kentucky Fried Chicken has 4,000 locations. Burger King has 800 locations. McDonald's has 2,500 locations. In-N-Out has 12. Five to 12. So by any metric, by any investor, venture capital, private equity, business school professor, um, publisher of a magazine, you'd probably argue In-N-Out's dead. They've lost it. They're they're gone. I mean, they just, how could that company succeed when they've got competitors at 4,000 locations, 800 locations, 2,500 locations? Well, guess what kept happening? McDonald's, and I'm going to pick on McDonald's now. There was a boom in uh, new kind of ways of processing food, frozen, dehydrated, prepackaging, and McDonald's adopted all of it. It put milk substitutes in this milkshake. It put meat fillers and non-beef additives. It froze its meat patties and french fries and delivered them to the stores. It added chemicals, additives, and coloring agents. It centralized and outsourced a lot of its preparation. It started using rewarming heat lamps so they could just put it up there. And the goal was, it's like, this actually makes our food cost cheaper, so it can help fuel this growth. And it's actually more consistent quality. It's lower quality, but it's consistent. So you're going to get the same hamburger and same fries everywhere in the country. And guess what Harry did? During that period, he added one thing. Nothing changed in his menu. Added one thing, Seven Up. <laughs> <laughs> so Harry, you know, passes away in 1976 when they had 18 stores, and they were opening less than one store per year over a 28-year period. But Harry and Esther never lost focus on their purpose: freshest, highest quality hamburgers and fries, clean environment, service innovations, treat their people well, and remain family-owned. So you kind of fast forward today, Rich took over as CEO, was 24 years old. Unfortunately, Rich died in a plane crash when he was 41, and there was a little bit of turmoil here, but I think it's now back in very good hands with Lindsay Schneider. And in and out is about 330, 350 locations, a billion dollars in revenue. What's it worth? I don't know. It's an extremely powerful brand. It's probably worth billions of dollars. Um, and they open about 10 stores per year. That's in contrast to McDonald's at 37,000 locations, 23 billion in revenue, probably worth $130 billion. It's been public since 1965. And the original you know, family, of course, the McDonald's were out well before, but the Crocs, as far as we know, have no ownership of McDonald's at all, whereas In-N-Out 100% owned by Lindsay Snyder. So what I think you're trying to highlight and I'm trying to highlight here is that I think all of us really respect the brand of In-N-Out. I think there's people who are 
uh, rabid fans of the food and the service. And most cities would love to have an In-N-Out burger come into it. They just love that. I think Lindsay recently stated that they're not going to go east of uh, Texas for quite some time. But, you know, this this would be a classic evergreen story. You know, well, you know, everybody's just rushing to get big fast and kind of win the race. They stayed consistent with their purpose and their core values, treated their people well, developed. And, and, and they continue to pay them well, too. Um, you you mentioned pay before. You know, McDonald's continues to struggle to pay minimum wage. But do, do you know what they pay managers at In-N-Out Burger? You know, I don't know specifically, but I had heard it might be as high as 83000 a year versus 38000 for McDonald's. That's there you a go. Pretty significant difference. <laughs> it's quite a significant difference. And, in that, and that thirty-eight thousand might be Burger King, actually, not McDonald's. But you know, I think they're probably McDonald's and Burger King in, in the same range. So you know, they treat their people very well, and I think people love to work it in now. Yeah. So I, that, that to me, that's a success story. So it looked like in the '60s, uh, by any kind of measure of a financial investor or business person, that you know Harry Nestor were just squandering their opportunity. You know, they had really nice hamburgers and a loyal fan base. You know, today that's that's a, that's just a beautiful company. I'm talking to Dave Warden. My name is Lauren Feldman. If you have a question, uh, we've got uh, an expert on uh, how you fund and grow uh, and build a business to last. Uh, you've got a couple minutes left. If there's something on your mind, give us a call. We're at one eight four four Warden. That's one eight four four nine four two seven eight six six. Um, just as a side note, Dave, in my early days as a business reporter, I worked in Columbus, Ohio, where Wendy's uh, grew. And Wendy's had come out and gone public and made a lot of people wealthy in uh, Columbus. And nobody wanted to miss the next Wendy's. So when I was there, <laughs> there were about, I think, you know, more than 10 uh, fast food uh, shops opened with the goal of, going national and you know that the, Columbus had a reputation as kind of being test city USA the theory was if you can make it there you can make it anywhere uh, and all these companies were were raising money and some of them were were, were just completely bizarre uh, some of them had a little bit of success but but most of them failed and I actually thought it was it was a little bit like the the dot-com bubble uh, when that happened years later uh, it seemed a little familiar to me because it, it was very similar to what I'd happen with fast food in Columbus, Ohio. Yeah, and I, and I think, you know, most of us don't have that historical perspective you have, Lauren, which is really interesting, is that you've seen these patterns where it's a, everybody says, you've got to get fast, you got to win the market, you know, now it's time or you're going to lose. And for people who are investors, that's a message which actually is very self-serving to them because that gets their capital deployed in those companies. What's not saying on the other side of that is that, oh, wait a second, is it really a winner-take-all moker? Can I really not build something successful with happy customers, happy employees, and a profitable business? I mean, the other one I can think of is we were just talking is Cliff Bar, and, you know, and there's that kind of legendary story of Gary Erickson sitting there about to sign the documents to sell his company, right? And his partner Lisa sitting next to him, 50-50 partner. And something isn't right. And I think he's in Emeryville or Berkeley, and he gets up and goes for a walk and calls his wife, Kit, and says, Kit, I can't do this. You know, everybody's telling me I have to do this. You know, Powerball just got bought, I think it was by Nestle or somebody. Everybody tells me they're going to crush us. Um, but I don't want to, I think it was because I don't want to live in fear. I love the business. I love our products. I love our customers. I love our employees. You know, I'm going to get $60 million, but 
Cliff's gone. It's no longer my business. So he went back in and said no. And that led Lisa to her lawyers suing him immediately to get her $60 million that wasn't <laughs> going to be available to her. And, you know, that's going to be pretty brutal. You just heard that first from everybody around you, everybody, that you're going to get crushed if you don't sell the business. And two, uh, after being crushed, now you're going to have your former partner actually sue you too. Anyway, so Gary worked through that successfully, paid her off, met his commitments there. And I don't know the skill now, but I, I, I can guess roughly it's a billion dollars, and I think it's a very well-run business. I'm guessing it probably generates at least 10 or 15 percent EBITDA, so 100 to 150 million a year. And uh, I think Gary and Kit still own 80 percent of it, and maybe the rest is under employee ownership, 20 percent. But you know, just if they were distributing their cash, which I think they're probably not, they're probably reinvesting a lot of it in the growth of the business. But they would be getting more than one to two X every single year, what he would have gotten one time if he had just let that ink run out of that pen on that piece of paper. You know, I'm curious though. It, it's interesting because it, it didn't necessarily have to go that way, did it? I mean, th- there was a lot of competition, and, and there's uh, there's been a lot of competition since then that they couldn't Absolutely. possibly have anticipated. They they could have gotten crushed, and and I wonder how he looks back at that now. Well, I, I, it'd be a great conversation to have with him. You should, you should try to reach out and talk to him about it. You should talk to Lindsay too, Snyder, if you're given the opportunity. Uh, but I, I think he's very proud of that company. I think he's very proud of the culture. I think he's very proud of their products. I think he's very proud of their international expansion, which they started four or five years ago. Uh, and they have a lot to be proud of because it's a great place to work. Uh, they do offer great products. They're very innovative, too. I mean, they've really continued to maintain an innovative spirit. And I think the overall market has gotten much larger, but they've continued to maintain you know, their fair share of that market. And so uh, I, I think he, just, he and Kit just must be two very happy business owners. Uh, I'm sure they are. Which, which leads me to the last thing I want to ask you about. Yeah, two years ago at your event, um, a bunch of us got into a really interesting conversation about kind of the future of capitalism, and um, you know it was prompted by uh, a, a lot of concerns we hear coming from the millennial generation that has doubts about uh, what ca- capitalism has actually done to the planet and and to the country. Uh, I'm curious. I, I don't want to. I don't want to put you too much on the spot, but 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 a little bit. Um, do, do you see things <laughs> like uh, you're welcome? Uh, do you think like see Evergreen as kind of an antidote to those concerns? You know, I um, yeah, I'd like to believe so, and I think the people who are running Evergreen companies uh, do believe so. Um, I think they're very. Uh, I think unfortunately they're underappreciated and, uh, and 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 frankly probably misunderstood uh, because again. Uh, you, know, you haven't raised venture capital. You haven't raised private equity. You're not doing big financings with lots of money. Um, you're not kind of playing the game the way society thinks the game should be played. Right. But the truth is, and I love it because I think our, our folks are not looking for external validation. These CEOs are um, more naturally introverts. They're more naturally uh, kind of reacting to their own internal compass and their own North Star of what's important. And so they are doing those things. Um, that I think uh, represents the best of capitalism. They're taking care of their employees and investing in their growth. I mean, some of these companies have tenured employees 20, 30, 40 years. By venture standards, you can't even imagine somebody working in a company 20, 30, 40 years because you, know, you get your four-year stock grant, and you know you probably shouldn't move on after four or five years unless you get another big grant, right? So it's kind of transactional is that way. I mean, they're very involved in their communities and not only letting their employees, one, have good jobs that pay well so that money flows in the local communities, but they let their, their employees participate in those communities. I mean, very often, because they're not trying to grow at 100% a year, you hear things like, you know, we encourage our employees to coach their kids' 
teams. We encourage our employees to be involved in their church. We encourage our employees to be involved in their local civic groups, you know, be on the Chamber of Commerce, whatever it may be. And, you know, that's really, that, that's, that's really good. And then from a supplier standpoint, they're not going to be sold. And, you know, they're kind of putting that stake in the ground saying, look, you can invest in your company knowing that we will be buying those products from you for a very long period of time. As long as we're working well together, being responsive to each other, you're not going to suddenly announce that we've been sold to somebody because that's not where we're going. So, yeah, I, I, I think it is. I think it's a very a bright, shining star in the kind of the the, uh, the capitalist universe. And I think you know, I hate to say this, but I think before the public markets became so influential and private equity and venture capital became so influential, and the business schools on the country quick, I'm going to have so to stop like you that. in a second. Okay. Yeah, I, I think many companies were like this, or more naturally evergreen. Dave Warden, thank you so much for joining us today. It's been a pleasure, Lauren. Thank you so much. If you want to keep up with Dave, you can go to the tugboatinstitute.com or you can follow him on Twitter at DG Wharton. For more guest interviews, check out our Wharton Business Radio Highlights podcast on iTunes and Google Play. 